you need to stop calling it a book. So what do you want? What 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 do you want to call it? <laughs> I call it a multi-sensory experience. It's an MP3 because the book is auxiliary to it. Well, I actually haven't read the book at all. No, you don't need to. Right. You need to have the full experience. Hello, friends. Welcome to the pod. We are delighted to have our friend, mentor, collaborator, co-conspirator Margaret Wheatley on the on the pod with us today. Uh, she's recently uh, released her latest creation, uh, "Warriors for the Human Spirit," a songline. This is really a multimedia sensory journey that she takes people on, and she'll dive deep into it in the conversation with us. But uh, it's a marvelous conversation where we get to delve back and reflect on some of our shared history but also dig deep into what it means to be turning up to attempt to lead change during these times. What is the warriorship required of each of us individually and together? And if you know Meg, well, actually, even if you don't know Meg, what I will say is she is a provocateur, right? There were lines in this work that when she said them, I was like, oh, okay. And and we asked her about those, right? I, I went right to those lines. I'm like, what did you mean by this? And how is that? And I just felt like this conversation was so expanding, both mind and heart. And I just really appreciated talking to someone who is moving into her eldership and her practice really unapologetically and just sharing that with us. Well, and it was great to use because like she'll pick out certain, when, when you pick out those pieces, she often chuckled and was like, oh yeah, yeah, I put that in to, you know, <laughs> just provoke people a little bit, didn't she? Like she, yeah, I mean, it was almost totally. like she had, she had deliberately like tickled the beast, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, and put certain lines in just to kind of like turn people's minds to kind of like, just like chip away at, at thoughts or concepts that may have become too rigid or may yep. have become too solid. And and I feel her even doing that on the pod with us, you yep. know, um, yep. which was just, yeah, a wonderful experience. Yeah. So have a listen. It's a good one. Here we are. So, Meg, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for stopping in uh, around the virtual table or campfire or whatever you want to call it with the with the Find the Outside podcast. Both Tuesday and I have uh, kind of dwelt in the land of your most recent publication. I'm not even sure if that's the right it's word. A word. You just, it's you a just word. told me, yeah, a piece of work, but you just the multi sensory experience that is warriors for the human spirit a song line a journey guided by voice and sound and one of the things that struck me the most in it was this was the journey through the landscapes that you took us these physical spaces and tuesday and i in the podcast and just generally in our lives go out into nature as a place for solace and reflection and learning and it's massively informed our, our business and and the growth of our organization and how we work with people. My goodness, we even called it the outside. And so I just wanted to have you almost straight away speak to not just the, the metaphor that you, and you actually said to me, it's not a metaphor. These right. are real places. So could you just talk a little bit about your relationship to the outside, to the natural world that has kind of grounded and informed this latest piece of work for you? I don't have a relationship with the natural world. I just feel I am. Mm. 
the natural world. And that's not a cute turn of phrase. For me, it's how life feels once you're open to it and fully trying to open your senses and awaken to what is great mystery, but also uh, what is easily available and understanding there's a lot more going on here (laughs) than we humans. And so all the recent work on uh, how trees are, uh, um, everyone's working with mycelium now and mushrooms and, and bacterial colonies to understand what is life. And I have always had a yearning as a very young child to be in wilderness. And fortunately, I live in Utah. I've lived here since 1989. And the geology allows for, I live in wilderness and the nearest suburban community is just 15 minutes down the mountain canyon. Um, So it's been perfect for me. But I also, working with my... um, Tibetan Buddhist teacher um, developed an understanding of all the many beings in Tibetan cosmology that are very present. And as he would say, Namkai Norbu would say, well, you may not believe in them, but they're still impacting you. <laughs> so, <Right>. you know, <laughs> and, um, and for me, you know, one of the things I'm just so focused on is how totally And destructively, we are so anthropocentric. We think we're the only deal in town. We think we can manipulate nature and life to our own demands and our own needs. And that's why we're in the great tragedy that we're in now, just watching the planet take back never gave up control, but we could ignore it. And now we can't ignore it. So my life now, I would say I'm a true mystic. Hmm. I want to read you a little something, not from the song line, and then we can talk about where that came from. But in 2010 for, no, 2014, for my 70th birthday, I uh, wrote an extended prose poem with photographs called how does Raven know? Because I was in that question, how, how does all this mystery happen Mm. that Ravens show up when I need them, or we all get support from, if you're taking an indigenous perspective, we're always getting support and information and guidance from other domains. So I wrote this and it begins with, I am not interested in being hopeful or optimistic or working diligently to reverse the patterned path of history we tread so reliably toward collapse. I am interested in being able to stay in the midst of this terrible travesty that degrades the human spirit or denies we have one. Caught on the balance beam of meaningful work and terrifying times, I want to walk steady in the world learning what balance feels like, blessed by the active presence of companions in sacred world. Mm. And when I was in Australia in 1999 with the Pitinjaran people in the West, Western desert, and before that, what I had learned from Peter Senge's work is that 
for the aboriginals, again, there's no separation of some sense of individual human then going out into nature or uh, learning from nature. No, you are nature. You are the land uh, if you're indigenous Uh, in ways that I can speak about. I've witnessed it and I have a very modest experience of that now. But what the land holds and what is in the song line, the warrior song line, is the recognition that memories and history and information that we need are in the land. Mm. And so this is my song line. These are my landscapes. And I did get some serious pushback from a few people who called it cultural appropriation. Mm. I'm using a form that is very sacred but I'm using my landscape. So these are all places that I have walked and um, in fact gave birth to the whole idea of a song line in the great forests of the Northwest and then in my sacred place where I do feel I am this place of Zion National Park, the Red Rock country of Utah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. I've got questions, but I've already asked one, Choose. I guess it's your turn, I've, I suppose, whatever. So many questions. And I feel like the natural question would be to ask around, like, how are you working with and living with this cultural appropriation concern? But I actually, I want to ask you something different. I want to yeah. ask you, um, you said, blessed by the presence of companions in the sacred world. In sacred world, yeah. In, and I was so moved that you did this journey, the songline with Jerry Grinelli, I felt like as you were talking, as his music was playing, I felt like the friendship that you all had was just the foundation we were walking in. And I just wondered if you might talk about it with us a little bit. Yes. Well, Jerry and I have been together in doing all sorts of mischief. That is true. I just think like oh mischief is, God, I just want to, yes. I just want to just like catch you right there because like <laughs> mischief is exactly the right word. Having been on the receiving end and participant <laughs> in, and I think sometimes collaborator with, you know, I think mischief is a great word for it. Thank you. Yes. So since 2000, when we met at the first Shambhala, uh, Institute in Halifax. And Mm. over the years, I mean, we taught together and I was always bringing in uh, how important and crucial and profound I thought the Shambhala warrior teachings were. And then I I did become part of the Shambhala lineage with Pema Chodron as my teacher. And Jerry and I just grew closer and closer. And then when it became clear that I was to start training leaders and activists and anyone who was willing to make the commitment, when I was going to uh, take on the responsibility of training warriors for the human spirit, um, and Jerry was just so clearly the one I was to do this with, and that was mm-hmm. because of the strength of our teacher, Chagyam Trungpa. So we, we learned how to do this, and we started in 2015 in Zion National Park. Mm. Uh, very sacred, very uh, where other 
dimensional beings were very present for us. And we've trained several hundred people by now. And then we were just really good at getting to know what warrior training required and how to be with people who were taking on this dedication and this discipline. This is a lifelong path. It's not leadership training. So I I knew I was going to write another book. And I thought the book was about uh, warrior training. And I was with Christina Baldwin in the great forests of Whidbey Island. Nice. I remember turning to Christina because we were talking about this book. She already saw it as a journey. Hmm. And then I just remember standing by a, a downed old growth cedar that was just massive. I just turned to her and I said, I hear music with this. Mm, mm. And then it came very quickly. First, I thought it was a song cycle. And then I I went down to Zion right then and was told, no, this is a song line. And um, I never for a moment, I am going to talk about Jerry and all this, but I never for a moment felt that I was dishonoring a cultural tradition. This whole craziness around cultural appropriation says that whatever you have, you hold it tight and you don't share it. Well, that's not in the traditions Mm -hmm. of these cultures. It's Mm -hmm. all about take it, use it, be blessed by it. And I felt Mm -hmm. that having walked a song line and then studied it, that I was wanting to bring this form to life for my own experience and my own teachings. So I um, went and visited Jerry and we recorded the first improv on his staircase in his condo in Halifax, which had great resonance. And and we thought this is going to work. But then it became something bigger. We were thinking Jerry's going to do improv for maybe a 50 minute piece. But when I finished writing it, it was, it's four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jerry just said, I don't hear this anymore. I can't do this. This is not my work. Mm-hmm. And I said, after two hours of heartbreak and anxiety, I said, no, this is our work. I mean, mm-hmm. I, could, I knew it and it has your music in. And then uh, I started working with his wonderful manager, Colin McKenzie, and I listened to, I'd written the text, and I listened to more Jerry Grinelli music in one week than I think any other human being has ever done. I'm sure of that, (laughs) actually. And I started to piece together what I was looking for Mm. in the the emotional life of the listener. I mean, I can't even remember doing this, actually, but it was maximally creative, inspired, and just finding the right music for these different places, different places in the song line. And then, um, so we got that all together and went into the studio for two weeks when I got the total brilliance and genius of Jerry Grinelli Mm. in those studios. 
Wow. First, I recorded the narrative, and then we worked with a brilliant sound engineer to create this. I, I consider it a masterpiece. I think it blows me away every time I listen to it. Wow. Yeah. And the music becomes more and more powerful yeah. and evocative. Um, and then um, Jerry became very ill and was actually out of that crisis. It was three and a half months in the hospital. Wow. Um, we're still... We still had a very robust warrior community that I, I was teaching on my own. Everything was online by then. And then um, what, what happened with Jerry in the hospital was he faced death and died a few times, but he always came back, and he came back because he felt his, his bodhisattva vow that he still wanted to teach he still wanted to train his music students and our warrior students. And he recovered. Hmm. I mean, the great, great grief here is he survived that. He was transcendent for me in his teachings when he could speak about his three and a half months in the hospital. And, um, and we were teaching again, and then his heart just gave out. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh. So it, it's a, such a loss, and I am so grateful that this song line exists because it does. I'm glad you tuned into it Tuesday in that way. It just embodies a, not only a friendship, but a deep, vowed commitment to Chogim Trungpa mm. and, and that whole lineage of bringing in what – what does it mean to be a warrior, a spiritual warrior? Um, and then his music is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's sublime. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's sublime. And it's amazing how it just been the whole piece feels like a jazz piece in some ways, you know, like the way the, the words right. and the pausing and the intonation. There's one, yeah, and there's a whole beautiful piece of silence. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. Well woven. So you never know how life is going to unfold or confront, but in having the song line now feels like a real gift. Mm-hmm. And I'm still using it in warrior training. You know, so it has great, great. Um, it's still a great offering, and it's very useful for people to go through it, mm-hmm. even if you're not in our formal warrior training. We, you know, I have walking the song line with Meg as a resource for people where there are some videos of me hmm. coaching and going deeper with people. And those are all filmed in landscapes that resemble <laughs> wow. the song line. But the song line landscape is Zion National Park for sure. Hmm. I love it. <sighs> I was recently... Uh... It's my turn, right? Choose. Yep, I get to go that's now. That's right. Yeah. So, I, so um, I, I, you know, I, I go through these cycles of like expecting our uh, political leaders to do something that has some yeah. kind of like common sense and empathy and collective intelligence to it, and then you know, being outrageously disappointed that they haven't again <laughs> stepped up to lead in any way, and uh, and feeling really disappointed. I ended up. Uh, out at dinner with a mate of mine who's a uh, he's a subsoil geoscientist 
you know, mm. and the way he thinks about the world is in thousands and thousands of years. Right. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and it's quite a, it's, it's a, it's quite a perspective to think about the world over that kind of time span, you know, and at least in my conversation with him, it, it, it released some of that like tension and frustration I was feeling at the like, Oh, this is a huge journey we're on, you know? And, and yeah. he says things that I think we've been talking about for 20 years, which is, or, and you probably even longer, which is, this isn't about whether the planet's going to make it. This is about whether human beings are going to make it. This isn't a question about um, if human beings are going to make it. This is a question about how many human beings are going to make it. This isn't a question about whether life will survive. It's a question, right? I mean, all of that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and so in not in any way to diminish the kind of, I think the short-term tragedies that we are facing as as peoples, as environments, um, as communities. Um, but there's something about, you know, a song line is talking about acting on a timeline of thousands of years, looking backwards and forwards, mm -hmm. you know, as, as I listen to it. And, and, uh, and I'm wondering how, what is your experience of that perspective changing how we act? And I think your, I think the yeah. direct quote from the book is for you is like in this dark time, which threatens the human spirit. How does that, how does that extended timeline, both back and forward, change how we turn up here? Thank you. Because perspective is everything. And uh, part of our narcissism, anthropocentrism, is to think that we are the best, the brightest. Now we've truly screwed up, but uh, and we'll fix it with technology because we're so brilliant and we're the top of all species. We're the only conscious force in the universe. Some people feel that, um, you know, and that it's up to us to bring a higher level of consciousness to humanity. This is the conscious evolutionaries, which I won't go into, but yeah. what yeah. I'm seeing has two perspectives. First of all, I do have a scientific timeline that goes back tens of millions of years, billions of years actually, in understanding what's going on here. I do have an understanding of how the planet functions rudimentary, but, but rich enough. And anyone who's working on subsoil and soil is in the midst of oh, this yeah. terrible tragedy yeah. that we yeah. have lost the soil mm. without mm. the soil. We have nothing. Um, and, but the other aspect to that, so there's the living world, living systems, of what's going on here that doesn't need us. And it's, it, we're just such a momentary blip, even in the course of the planet, we've enjoyed this kind of quality of climate for about 10,000 years, a little less. But then there's the human us at this time in trying to understand what's going wrong. Why is, why are these leaders consistently outrageously corrupt self-centered grasping power oh for themselves yes, and truly yes. destroying humanity as we've already done the planet now they're just acting in ways that that will lead to the death of billions of people but i think the planet's going to 
cause that first. But anyway, what I've been so, I don't know which kind of adjective, I've been so outraged for commentators and people to think that we're the first civilization to go through this. Because the book I wrote in 2017, Who Do We Choose to Be?, is based on the the pattern of history. So I made reference to it in that piece that I just read. The we are trotting the well the well defined pattern of civilizations rise and fall. Right. Everything right. in life is cyclical, and we keep thinking, no, it's it's a going back and forth. We're on the negative end of the pendulum and then it'll swing back. Well, there's nothing in the living world that works on a pendulum basis. <laughs> you know, it's all cycles. So when I got interested in studying the rise and fall of civilizations, then it became so clear where we are in this completely detailed even pattern of collapse. And so all the things that we are struggling with and crying out for change, which we should keep doing because there's a moral authority, a voice that needs to say this is not right. But to expect that we're going to reverse it would be at this point a historical. So at this point, every human civilization, as it's completing its life cycle, is focused on entertainment, distraction, sports heroes, musicians and artists, theater people as the celebrities. This happens everywhere. Going back to 8th century um, in, the, in the now Arab world, people were, uh, were uh, you know, it was the same dynamic of people. Sporting events became like wars being worked out. So just right. like England. Um, and uh, only people worshipped celebrities and movie stars. They had theater stars and musicians. And the elites take everything for themselves. They, they're just into self-preservation, whether, you know, trying to get to Mars <laughs> or get out of here somewhere. In, with, with, I don't even want to talk about those billionaires, but people are grasping for life for themselves. And the rest of the population is locked down in fear and fighting increases at this last stage. And the fighting is so intense internally that nobody notices whether it's the barbarians at the gate, the invaders, or in this case, climate is, is what is destroying it. But these dynamics are normal <laughs> for human societies of our lack of, you know, of at our level, at the lack of consciousness or uh, we're not in the golden age. We're in the, you know, the dark age of destruction. And so for me, the work then is now that I know that I don't want to argue about this. It's just so damn clear. Um what do we do? And that's where my work with leadership hmm. became very clear. Well, we have to prepare leaders, activists, people who care to be ready to deal with increased suffering and to know what it feels like to be present and compassionate and generous and not, not get destroyed by this just massive fear that has now seized the planet. And when we're in fear, we're in survival mode. We're animals. 
there's a human animal and a human being, and you don't get to be a human being unless you learn to work and develop your consciousness. And then once you do, you're overwhelmed by the amount of pain and suffering, and you see there's a lot more coming. But then you turn your anger away from these politicians and elites who always behave that way. They still need to be called out on it all the time. I'm not saying we accept it. But to put it in context, I now shift my, my awareness, my work, my training to how can we be people who will be present and support people and do what's possible at a local level to create life that is, is better than, than what we're facing. But we're going to continue to get hit with these cataclysms, both human and natural. And I just want to, it's always only a few people. This is never a mass group, but a few people who understand that their value is to embody the best of human nature and their value is to offer themselves without ego needs wherever they they feel they can be helpful or useful mm. and so it is a work of uh, requires a lot of training to be a peaceful presence these days requires enormous training to get your own fear and ego needs out of the way. And then you discover, wow, this is really meaningful, wonderful work, Mm. but it's nothing like what we thought we would be doing. No. Well, Meg, one of the quotes that really landed or just like had me stand up straighter in your book was around, um, you do not make the path while walking. Yes. You know, I actually thought of our old conversation. And I, I mean, I just loved it. And then you said, you surrender, you do not co-create. That is my very favorite line in the book. And I needed you to talk more about that because I just, (laughs) this personally, this, this word surrender has been up for me for just a couple of years. And I feel like I'm learning moment by moment how to surrender. And so I just love to hear you talk more about that, especially as it, as it relates to kind of our past work and what we do, we co-create all the time, Tim, that's our work, right? We, we say a million times a day, build the path as we walk it. And so I just love to hear. There's, we're talking about two different dimensions right now. So in your work, in my work in the past, we wanted to create possibilities, the desired future, outcomes. Yes, that's all very valid. And so that path, if you're not co-creating, and if you're not in this openness that we're making the path by walking, which is another word for being constantly adaptive, right? Right. And noticing what might be the right next step. And then you try it and then you think, nope, that wasn't it. Let's try over here. That's, That's our work as we're manifesting in the world. Where I and I was deliberately making what could be like outrageous statements, like you do not co-create. I loved it. What that applies to is the warrior path. Mm. What what the journey is about. It is well trodden. This is where our 
narcissism needs to give way to a profound humility that, well, it's just my turn to serve the world. It's just our turn, folks. There's nothing big or special about it. And mm. certainly when I, whenever I'm in real despair, which is frequent yesterday, um, yeah. um, I go back to my, my real role models are Mandela in his prison cell. What did that feel yeah. like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you keep going? How did you educate people? How did you prepare for leadership when at the same time you're faced with all this brutality and um, how did you persevere? So to know that we are just taking our place in this endless cycle of human beings who have served others who have not thought about themselves, that's what I meant. So the song line, the training of warriors, the path, the obstacles we meet, the fears we encounter, the blessings we feel, the community we build. These are all well-trodden paths. Mm. So what I was trying to do Tuesday was to take our great arrogance, (laughs) which has gotten, you know, so totally out of control in everything, but in terms of, you know, leadership, you know, well, I know what to do, so everyone do it. Right. You know, or um, I don't like this part of the warrior training because it's too painful. I don't want to surrender. That's the last thing in life I want to do mm-hmm. is surrender. So that's where I was very clear that this is a well-trodden journey experienced by millions of people over over human historic time. And the work really is to surrender. I mean, there is no spiritual tradition that will, uh, well, every spiritual tradition has this realization that if you don't surrender, um, then there's no progress. But that's been used to oppress people, to create orthodoxy, you know, surrender to me have yeah, faith in right. me. That's not what we're talking right. about. We're surrendering our, whatever keeps us um, protected, all of the things we think we need to be happy. We're, we're surrendering that and opening to what is possible, opening to mystery, opening to other people, Um And the greatest surrender then is when you do develop full trust that this is my right work, this is the right path for me, and then you stop uh, trying to change it. You stop when you hit a hard place, which we all do when we're trying to let go, right? You hit a hard place and you stay with it. That's real surrender. You stay with the path, the training in faith that, okay, I don't think this is working. I don't like this at all, Mm -hmm. but Hey, I have surrendered to this path and I'll get through it. I'll go through. I I was talking to Tuesday yesterday about like 
I was just saying oh, I'm experiencing a lot of self-doubt at the moment around mm-hmm. kind of like some of the things I'm committing to or where I'm at or what is it that I actually want to step into in this next phase of our of our work together and of my own life and and chooses advice where she's like well don't she's just like well just maybe you just need to spend some time with the self-doubt you know <laughs> maybe you just need to just stay there for a while you know and um yeah and I think a, a lot yeah right yeah. and 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 uh, it just echoes a lot of what you were saying, I think. And, and a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the journey I've been on over the last kind of two years has been really kind of like going in to my own little underworld and discovering what is there and getting to know it and, and making friends and building relationship. And, and, uh, and one of the things I've really noticed is a lot of that is held in my physical body. Like I can, you know, in, in the work I've been doing, there are, mm-hmm. you know, like my, my physical body gives me messages. There's a reason my anxiety is in a certain place. There's a, you right. know, there's like, and, and, but I was also really struck in your book because I feel like I can often locate emotions or feelings or transformations or trauma in my physical self, you know, and, and yeah. that's been a big part of my own journey and discovering my own, you know, what it is that I need to have some peace with to be able to turn up in the world more peacefully. Um, but you had this great quote in the book, which was our most profound experiences are beyond the physical. And I just wanted you to, I wanted to talk, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. And I wondered if it connected to this story you told me, I don't know, I think when we first met about how at one point you were going, you were going somewhere to give a keynote and you were totally stressed out. And, uh, and then just before you got there, there was a huge sign painted on the ground that said yield. Yes. You know? and <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember telling me. I story. remember the place. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so, the, and I, you know, at the, the time as a young man, I was like, oh my goodness, there's messages we receive that, you know, there are some things that come from within my physical body and there are some things that are just given to me. And so, this idea that our most profound experiences are beyond the physical, I just wanted, I just wanted to invite you to speak about it a bit. You already know this but first i want to honor the fact that so much good work has been done on uh especially with i'm most familiar because i studied it with trauma of somatic release the body holds the body knows the answer is one book title title the body knows what's going on that this is a repository of filled with useful information but it is very dense and it's held in the body. And when I said you already know other, other uh, ways of knowing, it's you have an emotional body. And I'm using the word body because I'm studying now in the yogic science tradition. And, and there are three bodies. There's the physical body, the emotional body, and the mental body because they actually have form and uh, in in varying degrees of of, uh, transparency. But the question is to, if you want to understand, if you want to become conscious and aware and develop your perceptions of what's really available, you can't do it from the five sense organs and you can't do it from your body. So we use our mind Um, And then we learn to work with meditation. We learn to work with awareness. 
And we open up to a whole different way of knowing and a whole different sense of what's going on here and what's truly real and of value. Um, so spend time with the body, but as a release from where it is holding you back. In- and I think just hearing you say that, um, there's something about like, what are these gateways to be on the physical, you know, and I just think about music and I'll even think about traditional sure. music For that sure. my dad passed down to me, you know, and, and, um, or whether it's, I'm sitting, you know, me and my son Elliot are just learning the tin whistle together because he just wants, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, we're playing tunes that my dad taught me that his dad taught him. And, and so there's something about these access points into something beyond the physical well, think about it. music. You knew, can, you, know, you knew this because we were together when I was talking about this. There's no word for art in indigenous right. cultures. Why is that? Because they were into the full expression of human experience. And they were using, uh, like every other species, they were using sound. They were using rhythm. They were using trance, these things that take them out of the really narrow, limited confines of our physical bodies. And yet we say, well, no, you're playing music. No, you're having a much richer human experience that combines everything and takes you to places that you couldn't go to if you were just physically or mentally uh, located. Right. Which is one of the beautiful things about this book is that it can lift us, right? Because of the right. music that is in there. Just like I feel like stories can do that and old stories exactly. can do that. That I mean, these stories that have been around for hundreds of years that are straight up, they've lasted so long because they're messengers from our ancestors, you know what I mean? That are still relevant today. And so I think there is something in this uh, ability for like story and music and these that give us gateways into beyond the physical. Yeah. We're looking to transcend the mental body, our fears, our doubts, um, and just be in a different, uh, well, I can only use the word dimension. It's a different dimension when you're playing music, when you're, when you're finding a groove, when you're finding the zone, you know, as sports heroes speak about when you're um, just, you know, improving, improvisation in a jazz group, and suddenly you're all in a different space. Mm. This is what every culture knows how to do, except our really imprisoned, paralyzing Western worldview. Yeah. And choose, I'm going to pass it over to you. But- Wait, I want to say one thing about self doubt because Tuesday you gave <laughs> you gave him great advice. Um, don't, don't see it as doubt, see it as you really want to get down to some basics here. What do I value? What's important to me? And am I choosing the work that I, I feel is meaningful to me because of who I am, what I can contribute? It's not, it's not a bad state at all. It's wonderful. Right. 
choose. I, I was just going to say through these, we, we've got this incredibly rich series of conversations in series four of the podcast, you know, and uh, we, yeah, you, you know, Adam Kahane and we were talking to him, but he, he was also talking about, you know, settling into flow when, when you're facilitating something, there's something that is just beyond you. There's something beyond you that you can enter that carries you. And you can feel Tol- it when it happens. Right. Yeah, and Tolkien Muller talks about becoming the magic. You know what I mean? But we've, we're, we're, I feel like we're all describing this very similar thing that is at we the are. heart of service, right? And it's and, that, you yeah. know, what's interesting about it, Tim, is that all of us were exceedingly well-trained and created great processes, great technologies even, you know, um, the flow game is a technology. It's a device, mm. right? Mm. Adam's uh, great work in in how to how to create really rich stakeholder groups and what mm. to do when they're together. Those were our technologies, and now we're understanding, like a great musician, that once you start to get those working then you're taken to another zone. You're taken to the non-analytic um, communion level in some cases or uh, rich in insight that doesn't come from you. So we, the, we all created different techniques and technologies, vehicles for getting there, and now we're all realizing, oh, this is what there is really feels like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love it, and you know, you mentioned technologies, and you said you said the word analytic, and I wanted to ask you really specifically around. You, I'm sorry, I keep quoting your book back to you, but that's just these are the things that I, I really love it. Do. I love it. <laughs> you you said why wouldn't I? You said refuse <laughs> to stay confused, and I was so struck by that. There's something about courage, there's, and I also wanted to say the surrender piece, like wow, does it take courage? Like that, like surrender is like the, it's almost superhuman courage, I think, when I think about how to do that and what what it takes to do that. But I was thinking when you said refuse to say confused, I thought, oh, right. But you don't mean like get more data. Let's look at more data. But I thought that was such a confronting thing that often we are actually choosing to stay confused rather than kind of walk this path. Peter Block's great book title, The Answer to How is Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just go for it. You just get engaged and then you're learning what works and what doesn't work. But confusion is is an excuse these days. However, I also want to say that when you're really surrendering, what you're surrendering, which does feel like it's courageous, but what you're surrendering is your ego. You're surrendering your self-protective mechanism that you think you need in order to survive. Yeah. That's just yeah. one definition of ego that I value right now. Mm-hmm. So it feels courageous, but actually once you do it, it's blissful. It's, mm-hmm. it's lovely. It's, you know, and the times I have surrendered have been when I've hit rock bottom. Yeah. Absolute bottom. It's like, you know, it, when it says yield, it's like, yeah, that's all I can do. And and then when I had those experiences, then I could um, understand that, no, surrendering is a wonderful, mm. can be a joyful 
transformative way to be. But um, the way we use confusion is quite as, as this defense. You know, so Peter Block's work was, well, people always ask me, well, how are we going to do that? How, how, how? Like, if I knew how, then I would do it. And he got to the realization that, no, you're using all these questions. Just tell me what to do, and of course I'll do it. No, you won't, because it's a defense strategy. But okay. then the kind of, uh, the contrast I want to make is to not knowing Mm. To really being mm-hmm. in the world with a sense of wonder, with a sense of uh, just constantly opening to to everything we don't notice because we're just going headlong on our own little path um, and only wanting the world to work a certain way. So we miss all this information and and we miss the wonder of it. So not knowing is a life stance. And confusion, I would say, is a defense mm-hmm. against that. opening. I yeah. love that distinction. I hadn't put those two things together before, but wow, that's really, I think that's really, really powerful. I feel like we could bring that to groups, Tim, right? Oh, yeah, you can. There's something about. So one of the questions I used to use in groups um, I think this is relevant. Anyway, I'll say it was when you're in a group to ask, so what is it we are not noticing? What is it we are not seeing here? Mm. So you're trying to open the perceptual filters and it always works like a charm because people are sitting on things that they want other people to notice first. So that's rich. And then you get curious. Okay, well, what didn't we notice about what this, this group of people need or what what didn't we notice about something that happened? I mean, it's just, we're just trying to open our perceptions with a sense of curiosity rather than certainty or, or playing with confusion as well. I just don't know what's going on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Give me more information so I can know what's going on. That's oh right. Gosh. And then I will All the be time. great. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got, I've got I've got one last question. We've got time for one last question to dive in and, and choose. I'm I'm going to ask this one, but I think you may want to add on to it before Meg answers. Is my instinct? Okay. I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm often wrong. Often wrong, but never in doubt is what my father-in-law uh, gave me recently. <laughs> <laughs> Which means he doesn't know me that well, but I you know I can take it. Yeah, and. Uh, um, uh, That's the definition of arrogance. I love it. Right. And so when Tuesday and I, I just think the outside in general turns up somewhere or gets invited somewhere, you know, we're often described as bringing optimism. Right. We're often described as bringing some sense of possibility, you know, like the. the- Let's look at how different those are. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, right. And, and, and so, you know, the tagline for the organization became something like a breath of fresh air or something. But literally, because we constantly got this feedback from people we were working with, that it was like they could breathe again. They were suddenly great. like, oh, oh, wow, we can, 
we are not powerless here. There's something we can do. There is an uplifting nature to it. But there's a really, I think there's a really strong kind of piece of positioning in your book about the relationship to hope. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to kind of entice that out a little bit because yeah. in, in my little brain and heart, I was trying to make some sense between what I think we often bring as the outside, which is this sense of optimism, this sense of fresh air, this sense that something else might be possible if we could just go for it versus the attachment to hope, you know? What you are giving people is a sense of possibility, a sense of forward movement, the sense of it still is an unknown future, but you are actually coming in with your faith in their capacity to be creative, to work together, to experience so many of the qualities of human interaction that we've just forgotten about, if not lost. And so what people are, you know, Tennyson uh, has said that the way he sums up all of his circle work is, I'm just reintroducing people to their humanity, to their humanness. And I quote Grace Lee Boggs, the great American activist, um, who said, we need to be human human beings. That's what you're bringing. So it's not optimism. They can label it whatever they want. It's not even hope. It's you're reintroducing people to what are humans capable of creating, even no matter what's going on around them. But what are we possible? Uh, what are we? capable of creating when we work together with a good spirit, with good listening, with generosity, with, you know, dropping our filters and our judgments about each other, what becomes possible? You are reintroducing people to their, their best human qualities and they're going to love you for it. And they're going to put all sorts of labels like you gave us hope. I don't care what people say anymore. What you're really giving them is a taste and an experience of how humans can work well together. And then they create something and it works. And if they don't create something that works, they still have that experience of what it feels like to be fully human together. That's what you're doing. Well, I I love that. I think that that's absolutely true. That fits for me. And um, yeah, for sure, that fits for me. And I think maybe, Tim, where you were kind of prompting me was um, I'm curious about, and we might be talking semantics because so much of your work fit with my kind of cultural understanding as an African-American person, right? Like, you are I'm like, we're, we're a string on a bead. This is just ours to do right now. But I've got a lineage and legacy of people have done before. I'm hoping I'm fostering conditions for lineage right. you know, forward. Okay. So that really, that really fits for me. And, um, and part of what is, what I'm aware of is when you say like kind of give up hope, it feels quite culturally rooted. Um, and yeah. So that's what I wanted you to talk about. As you may hear it that way, and I appreciate that uh, that's how it may be interpreted. But it's it's the essence of Buddhist and Asian, Asian thought, Hindu and Jainism and everything, that hope and fear 
are one, one state. And that when we put our hopes into the world of what we want to see happen, we open ourselves to fear because when it doesn't happen, then we're cynical, despairing, angry, whatever. But when we're in, it's an imposition of what we want the world to give us so that I can feel good. This is a new definition of hope, right? It is an imposition on the world. Now, when you're surrendering and opening to the world as it is, you see all sorts of possibilities for how you could be of service. It's not based on hope. It's based on the situation. It's what's needed here. And can I contribute to it? This is the question I'm putting out mm. now constantly. Mm. And um, there's nothing cultural about it. It's a fundamental human uh I don't know whether to call it an emotion. I don't think that's quite accurate. It's a way of being in the world. Like, am I going to be available or am I going to be demanding? Right. Right. And I guess I wonder how that lands, how that lands for, for folks who actually have never had hope for a future, but keep, keep on keeping on. Like that. That's right. That's why I wrote a book called Perseverance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. You do keep on keeping on. And why do you do that? Because that is what you need to be doing for your life to feel worthwhile. We come in with our big fantasies of saving the world, serving the world, changing the world. And we're just open as is quite evident now to profound disappointment and despair and cynicism and suicide. Right. And I guess, yeah, that's just really helpful because I think, yeah, I just think it's, it's just helpful for me to kind of land, like if I were to kind of use what you're saying, there's something I would say endemic to the African-American experience around perseverance. Like, I don't know that we Absolutely. as African-Americans ever oh come gosh, in yeah. and think we're going to change the world. Like, I don't know that we no, had no, that. No, I really want to make that distinction. I was speaking about, about as white consultant folks here. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, well, me we too. Came in, me too. We came in to change the world, but I mean, I certainly all the uh, experiences I've had with the African-American community and with Africans it's all of you just do what needs to be done and you maintain your faith. Right. That's, that's so, lovely. That's, that's beautiful. very that's different than hope, although it can be hope for beautiful. That's salvation and, you know, that's great. heaven. But yeah, that's it's that's great, Meg. That's really that's great. It's those of us who are activists of my ilk and Tim's ilk who uh, just really thought we're smart enough, we got the right techniques, we're going to go out there and create profound levels of systemic change. Wow. Yeah. I can work out very well. No. <laughs> just to say, I can count myself there too. I've been... Yeah, well, you've been influenced by us. <laughs> but I think that is the... But I think that is the breath of fresh air, though. I genuinely do choose. I think the breath of fresh air is that, like is that not just the faith that we can do something, but like our attitude is always, let's get to it. Really, we don't need any, we don't need to do any more data yeah. analysis. We don't need to do any situation and analysis. You all know where the leverage points are. Let's name them and let's just start and figure it out. And there's 
And there is faith that if we put one foot in front of the other and keep turning to each other, we're going to find a way forward, you know? Exactly. And that is the human fun- experience. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I really think that. And and people are getting stuck in the data analytics Mm -hmm. or. Oh my gosh. Confusion. So to just say, let's start, let's get going. And um, humans can get through anything as long as we're together. So keeping people together, Mm -hmm. which is increasingly hard work and what I see. Right. But that's, that's the critical factor there. Right. Because once they're together, they will realize, oh, this actually feels very different and very good. Right. Yeah. As long as there's the right container in place. That's that right. Togetherness. Yeah. That's right. Meg, I want to just really thank you. I feel like, um, I mean, always in your presence, I learn. and But I'm just, a, I'm aware of how much of our thinking and our practice, Tim, Meg has like oh just influenced, like you just name. You just named the books. I'm like, yep, read that. Oh, I sent that to someone. Oh, I, you know, it's just amazing the amount of influence that your thinking has had on our work. And um, so I just, I'm grateful that you're here today, but I'm also just feeling really, really grateful that you uh, kind of opened your mind and heart and spirit and your own warrior path to other folks. I think that's just incredibly generous. And I just wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I'm just feeling... Not a, I'm feeling a quality of missing and a quality of celebration and m- memorializing where we've been at different times on our mm. journey together. And now where you are just makes me feel very happy and grateful that you're doing this work. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there's no, there's no doubt for me that what did you say leaders of your ilk or our ilk ilk. like (laughs) carved open like i've carved open a space in the world Mm -hmm. for people like tuesday and i Mm -hmm. to step into and for organizations like the outside which is 16 people now from all over the world you know such a diverse crew to step in and and have another kick at the can to attempt to do to like raising this sense of faith to encouraging this foot in front of the other so i just yeah i love that And you've been referencing lots and lots of different books of yours and different materials of yours. This is not just about the multi-sensory libretto of a song line that we're talking about here. So where would people go who are listening to the podcast to find out more? My website is set up as a resource, as a library. Um, So you can read excerpts of my books. There's a lot of articles. Now there's a whole tab called Current Thinking with podcasts and videos Mm. I've been doing about where we are. And you can just, you know, flip through samples of my books. You can hear samples of the songline. It's just a a wonderful resource. So margaretwheatley.com, easy to find. Wonderful. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. And, and, and then Meg, the, the only other question we have been asking towards the end of these podcasts is, is there anyone else that you think we should be inviting in to come and chat to us in season four or season five? Is there someone who's circling around you that has just felt an important voice that needs to be given a platform to speak? And is there anyone out there? Well, there are a lot of people out there. Um, I have just reconnected with Miha Pogocznik. Ah. In fact, we're meeting in half an hour with a group from Schumacher to make a plan. So I would be thinking about artists, 
Mm. Um, I I don't know what's happened to um, Lawrence Olivier's son, whose first name I can't remember right now, who who's, was doing wonderful work at both the mythic and the practical mm. leadership level. Mm-hmm. Wait, I've got to remember his name. Well, let's call him Young Olivier for now. Uh, yes, he'd love that <laughs> after his years of therapy. Right. Can you imagine? Oh, this is driving me crazy because I, Richard Olivier, wonderful, and and his organization was called Mythic Drama. Mm. Well worth oh. checking out. Okay. Oh, I love the idea of inviting him on. Well, this is just like pure delight for me. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. I'm so glad. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. And and thank you for everybody who's listening, for kind of journeying with us over the last hour as we've kind of woven together a conversation, both kind of rooted in our, our memories and past experience of working together and right on the edge of what we're all discovering as well. So enormously gratitude for you coming in, Meg. Thank you. And thanks for all of those people who are listening that keep tuning in and turning up. Go well.